Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has thousands of audio narrations of both the latest and classics of literature, but also the home to numerous Audible original books, comedies, and podcasts you can't hear anywhere else. To get your free 30-day trial and free audiobook, click the link in the description or go to audibletrial.com slash into the night. And if you enjoyed the service, be sure to tweet us at Fazbear Podcast to let us know what you've been reading. This show is also brought to you by our listeners and supporters over on our Buy Me a Coffee page. Thank you all for the support, whether that is giving our show a listen, leaving a review or a comment, following us on Twitter, or sharing the show with your friends and family. From the bottom of our heart, thank you all so much for the love and support. And now, on to the show. Thursday I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their god, and they will be my children. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will all be consigned to fiery lakes of burning sulfur. This is the second. Revelations 21, passage 6 through 8. Something I have not told you all about myself is that I am a Christian. I believe in a higher power, and I believe in a paradise for all those with the goodness in their hearts and love in their souls. In conjunction, this also means I believe in a darker force, and a realm which held fire and unspeakable torture will be carried out on those who spread misery and agony onto the world to satiate their greed, their lust, their Scott Cawthon himself was also a Christian man. He made no attempt to hide his faith or his religious background. Some of his earliest work revolves around his duty as an animator for the Christian media group Hope Animations, and on his YouTube channel, you can still view some of his old animated movies like The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, this episode isn't about religion per se, but it is about life after death, purgatorical realms, and really just a whole lot of talk in heaven and hell. See, unlike the previous episodes where I fashion a more novel-esque-like narration to the story of Finance of Freddy's, this episode will be diving more into the supernatural elements of the franchise. Finance of Freddy's, since its inception, has always had a very loose grasp on what exactly the more paranormal powers of the world can do. How capable it is and what effects it can have has always been an up-in-the-air question. The original FNAF gives us subtle interpretations, robots possessed by victims of a tragedy, the blood of said victims left a stain on the building that can still be felt years after, the building is left in an unnatural state of reality and non-reality, as papers and posters on the wall change haphazardly, things that were once stationary and dead now come forth as sentient, and visions and ghastly whispers seep through every crack and crevice, echoing But as the story progressed and more entries have been added, the effects of paranormality information about what it is and can do in the world has ever since expanded. As such, the supernatural element in the universe of FNAF has the potential to pull off some crazy stuff. As a Freddy Fazbear Pizzeria simulator, the most jarring supernatural event that had occurred was Michael Afton being able to reanimate himself after being disemboweled by Ennard. But even then, the jarring event is supported through the narrative. Michael's reanimation, before FFPS gave a more concrete explanation for it, was believed to have been similar to his father's, or even the puppet's position. A strong soul attached to a familiar vessel to live on. But if any character had more motivation and the potential for coming back to life in their own rotten skin, Michael was the only candidate for it. What we're about to discuss in this episode is 
lot of theory work, however. Nothing is concrete or directly stated in the games we are going to discuss today. If Storm was more than likely a last-minute decision, Ultimate Custom Night, the game in question, was mainly a thank you project from Scott Kaufman to the fans of the games. Released a few months after FFPS in 2018, the game was released for free on PC, and was advertised heavily by Scott to be a massive celebration for the series. An entire game with a cast of enemies from all across the Finance of Freeze timeline, over 50 of them, crammed to one arcade-like game based on the most popular and infamous game mode the series had to offer. Infamously difficult custom night. Now, I can't confirm this, but I personally believe that this game began with absolutely no story in place. It truly was just to be a small, fun, quirky game for the fans, not some lore dump meant to be dissected and analyzed. I personally like to think that Scott looked over UCN and said, Well, I have this practically almost finished and complete, and I'm adding even more characters for both fan service and the drive players insane, so. Why not? Why not challenge myself and attempt to create a story in this? It might be the last game I make, and I'm already putting as much effort as I did in any other game, and it might just be a crazy enough idea, and I might be a crazy enough man that this could possibly work. And, well, that's what he decided to do. Somehow, he turned what was once planned as a non-canon one-off game to celebrate the franchise and its fanbase into a... dubiously obscure lore and hidden dialogue that all interconnect into one giant confusing, tangled spiderweb of information. And personally, if this game was meant to celebrate the franchise, I can't think of a better way to celebrate the franchise than the latter. Before we get into it, I should probably make an effort to elucidate on the claim that Ultimate Cuss Knight, or you see in short, is dubiously canon. There are some that believe that UCN is not canon to the series, the main reason being the amount of non-canon characters that exist in the game, such as the Jacko animatronics from FNAF 4, as well as Nightmare Mangle and Nightmare Yawn, also from FNAF 4's Halloween edition, as well as the convoluted and let's called bold and courageous use of cutscenes the game employs. I bring this up because I have received messages from listeners who call into question what I report on this show to be canon. I always enjoy getting messages from you guys, reading your theories, and I try to reply to any and everyone I can, whether they are email, Twitter messages, or a comment. Even if those comments are criticisms of the show, I will read and take into account what my viewers are saying. After all, I think it would be quite ironically hypocritical to ignore criticism for a podcast that was about a game that was born out of a game developer's critics lambasting him for his character design. But some messages I have gotten have been claimed that I have been wrong on certain information, that I have somehow gotten information wrong in the overall story. And if that's the case, I do listen back to the episode to see if I did give out incorrect facts. Thankfully, I haven't had to redact anything yet as most information I have been criticized for getting wrong goes into theory territory, which I don't deny that the possibility they are describing could be in fact correct. But, <laughs> some of you guys take believing your theories a little too far. One very disturbed fellow even told me he, quote, enjoyed facts, end quote, which I suppose I wasn't doing in the first place. I, I think this is a good point to reiterate how this show works. I did this show in a more of a dramatic narrative fashion, in a way that gets across the story of the games as an introduction for those new to the franchise, and as a refreshing perspective for veterans and avid fans of the community. But how I have operated this show is twofold. I consider the main storyline to be the most important information to detail. For more minute elements of FNAF's history, if it doesn't have the basis of being without a doubt a fact of the story that can either be confirmed in future games or novels, contains overwhelming evidence in the game that it is in, or was confirmed by Scott Cawthon himself, I will state that we will be entering into speculative territory that I cannot confirm. To put it simply, just because Game Theory said Juniors was the FNAF 2 location in one of the series, doesn't make it so. The same also goes with the name Casty. It has never, in any FNAF media, been confirmed to be the name of a certain golden bear. 
Either has been confirmed that, that same golden bear has two souls or two different dead children. That has never, ever been confirmed. I want to clarify my stance not because I don't like game theory, I think MatPat has a blessed man who put a lot of work into his videos and projects, nor do I want to communicate that I don't want to hear your theories and ideas. But when communicating about FNAF and theories, there are fine points in the series that enter into a realm of speculation, and in that world one has to keep an open mind to others and their interpretations. But in this show, I care about the facts and narrating the facts and the emotions of the mainline story. When writing the scripts for each episode, I make sure that I am telling you guys a factual account of what was trying to be portrayed by Scott. I only delve into theory territory when I inform you guys I do or when an episode is all about tackling theories and debatable information of the whole. The latter of which being a huge part of this episode. So please, keep this well in mind for this episode in particular. As you see, it is a very confusing and debatable topic from a lore standpoint, with multiple interpretations. If there is any solace, understand that only the underlying elements are needed to fully comprehend it. With that said, let's take the first steps into the flip side of the mortal realm, for we are journeying to the depths of anguish and despair where the lakes are red as sulfur, and where air burns like acid in the taste of ash. The darkest pit of hell has opened, and we are diving in to see what it has swallowed. This is episode 12. Leave the demon to his demons. When booting up Ultimate Custom Night for the first time, one is greeted with a massive menu of windows with various character portraits. UCN's whole gimmick is in its name, creating your own challenge to fighting Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, but unrestricted by time and space on what robotic atrocities can either halt your progress or hunt you down during the night. With over 50 characters to select from, such as the original band, including Freddy Fazbear and Foxy the Pirate, 
to more ludicrously advanced robots like Molsonfernian Scrap Baby, to even the obscure such as the knockoff Fazbear Band of the Mediocre Melodies, and the Halloween animatronics of FNAF 4, to even Phone Guy himself making his glorious return. Through close examination, one can notice an apparent visual theme of retro arcade games, both in design and visual aspect. The game contains classic hallmarks of the arcade era of gaming, such as the 8-bit era text that surrounds the menu screen, to even a flashing red game over screen when you are caught in jump scared. The game even revolves itself around a high score system, where the more animatronics and the higher difficulty one sets them at, grants a higher point. One of the ways it tries to encourage players to beat their previous high score is through intermissions, a classic staple of old arcade-era games to give players a momentary break after completing a few levels. Seen in games such as Pac-Man and Galaga with its bonus round where it's impossible to die. In use yen, these intermissions are cutscenes that can only be seen after every thousand point threshold. We will discuss these cutscenes and what they contain in the next episode. What is important to take away from this is the undoubtedly amount of references to arcade games and 80s arcade machines. Something that I neglected to mention in my previous episode on FFPS was the addition of death dialogue into the franchise. Similar to the Batman Arkham games, when a player is killed by an animatronic and is thus given a game over, the player is treated with an animatronic commenting on the player's death usually a snide remark or rude comment about their lack of awareness or reflexes. But what is interesting is that most of these characters have never been given an official voice until this game. Numerous animatronics in the series got their first official voice debut in this game. Even the joke characters, like the mediocre melodies, got official voices. Such as Mr. Hippo, the ultimate troll character who gives out unskippable two-minute monologue in a slow, drawn-out voice. It seems that you have met a, a horrible demise, my friend. But, uh, you know, these these things happen, and, and life life goes on. Not for you, obviously. You're, you're dead. But uh, it reminds me of a time I was, I was having a conversation with my friend Orville. We were, uh, where were we? I think we were by the... With the, the river, we were sitting by the river and watching the fish leap over the falls. And uh, I, I said to Orville, You know, sometimes I feel like a fish leaping over and over again, always trying to get somewhere, though I don't know where, only to find myself in the jaws of a beast. He, of course, looked at me uh, surprised, you know. Have you been in the jaws of a beast, friend? To which I said, no, of course not, Orville. I said, no, 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 no. I simply meant that life can seem like a relentless endeavor to overcome meaningless obstacles, only to meet an equally meaningless fate, regardless of your efforts, regardless of the obstacles you've passed. And uh, Orville, he, he stood and proceeded to drape me with a picnic cloth, to which I, I, I asked him, I said, friend, what, what are you doing? He looked at me very concerned, really. I feel like you've gotten too much sun. Indeed, <laughs> indeed I had. He proceeded to pour me a glass of just ice-cold lemonade. Ooh, you ever mix it with iced tea? You do like a little half lemonade, half... Ooh, it's so... You should try it some... Well, you can't because you're dead, but... Anyways, so you may be asking yourself, how did I go from sitting by the falls and drinking lemonade to being wedged in the air duct? Not only with Orville, but with an entire assortment of fruity-colored friends. Well, there's, uh, there's really no good answer to that, but perhaps I met a demise of my own at some point, and this is my afterlife, or my dream, whatever it might mean. I, I honestly don't know. Or maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. Maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. Now, I won't play all his lines for you here, you can find them all on YouTube, but I will let you know that even if you close the game when he is giving a monologue, try and skip it. The game will know, and it will restart the monologue again on startup. 
So needless to say, don't die to Mr. Hippo. <laughs> but overall, the mediocre melodies are fun and wacky, which fits their overall design. After all, these characters were knockoff robots, but even the tragedy or death that surrounded the Fastbird legacy. So it is fun contrast to see such energetic and cartoony voices in these robots as they were originally intended. Like, listen to Happy Frog's lines when she kills you. I bet you weren't expecting me, were ya? Turn your back for one second and I'm like, with you, ninja skills. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. Can I hear another one, please? Everyone underestimates me, but then they turn their back and I'm like, boo! And they're like, what? Oh, sublime. Absolutely fantastic. One more, please. We've only just begun. I will never let you leave. I will never let you rest. <laughs> what the hell? Yes, as is the case with most Fire Hunts of Freeze properties, there does exist more between the lines. As if one continues to play the game, they will often catch a glimpse from none other than the animatronic characters themselves. That something is wrong here. Some, like with a Bonnie from Fram 2, comment on how he doesn't quite understand where he is. One is it me trap or is it you? Perhaps it's While this could potentially be a tongue-in-cheek fourth wall joke of the characters being misplaced in space and time, his dialogue directed towards the player indicates a more sinister plot going on behind the scenes. The nightmare animatronics from FNAF 4, in particular, have some choice words that speak to the sinister motive. Quote from Nightmare Freddy, I am given flesh to be your tormentor. Quote from Jack of Chica. The fire within me burns eternal, and now you shall as well. End quote. Nightmare Fredbear. This time, there is more than an illusion to fear. I assure you, I am very real. These lines of dialogues are more than slight comment about a lack of gaming skills. These are marks of anger and disdain, enjoyment over seeing an individual suffering. Something is causing these characters to lash out and enjoy the revelry in the player's death. Or more specifically, deaths. Let's see how many times you can be pulled apart. What a gift to relish, a victim that can't perish. You and I will be making music together for a long, long time. These comments border on fourth wall breaking, as the animatronics seem to be aware of the player's inability to die, and always have the chance to try again. Effectively, they know you can respond. Why and how? Does it mean anything, or is it just silly jokes in reference to the game design? For further clarification, we will think it answers from a more direct reference. A creature who is not only surrounded by death, but encompasses it. For those who need a refresher, Nightmare has a similar appearance to Nightmare Fredbear. A tall and massive bear-like beast with razor-sharp claws and jagged teeth. Its fur is a translucent black, 
revealing the metallic skeletal structure beneath. It has glowing red eyes and adorns itself with a golden top hat and bow tie. I had previously claimed that Nightmare was a personification of death and fanfare as he did not have the usual characteristics of the other Nightmare animatronics. This dream demon had an unusual ghostly wail, and if he captured the player he would not simply return them to the main menu screen, he would restart the game. A form of video game storytelling that utilizes the medium to clarify his role. Nightmare isn't there to repeat the dream, he's there to end it. Nightmare, and by extension Nightmare Eon, are finite Freddy's personification of death. Grim Reapers, Black-Winged Harbingers, or simply Angels of Death, whatever you wish to call them, whatever species they may be. There is no denying that these creatures are death incarnate. Now, for warning folks, we are entering theory territory for this section. Just like every other character in UCN, we are going to interpret that these are not some illusions of these dream entities, but are indeed the death angels we recall from the previous games. Additionally, I will be interpreting that both Nightmare and Nightmareon are two distinct characters with similar roles, rather than the case of other characters in the UCN like Barney and Wither Bonnie, who are the same character just in different states of time. Knowing what these creatures are, we can now use them as a base for understanding what is happening in UCN. And according to them, this isn't simply some normal game, this is a form of eternal torment. I will vomit you back to relieve your horror. Let's take This would explain the comments made by Weathered Bonnie earlier. This building with no exit, these halls with no windows, this place the animatronic character and the players find themselves trapped in exists outside of the world of the living. It is a prison. A prison designed to torment the player character. Furthermore, we also get to understand how these agents of death work, as both dream demons make a comment about their appearance. I am your wickedness, made of flesh. I am the fearful reflection of what you have created. It appears these reapers take on the appearance of a twisted vessel that reflects those that see them. In the case of Nightmare, the dark version of Fredbear, he claims he takes on the appearance of the player's wickedness. Their sins and actions conjure his appearance, in this case, a corrupted version of a childhood mascot. You will not be spared. You will not be saved. While Nightmare Eon takes on the appearance of a terrifying reflection of his actions' consequences, death, and destruction the players cause, he takes on a fearful representation victims, in this case, a form of the marionette, but his appearance has been demonized to the point to represent the loss of innocence and the corrupting force of the player character's actions. This is a nightmare that you wake from. This brings into question who is the player character who has been subjected to this torturous realm. More insight into their identity can be gathered through the mediocre melody animatronics, specifically Ned Bear and Orville the Elephant, both of them also go into a strange possessive state, slowly talking unlike their normal personalities, and the faint whisper of a small child beneath their voice. This is how it feels, and you get to experience it over and over and over again, forever. I will never let you leave. From these lines and the words of Happy Frog we heard previously, we can not only assume that a specific person is responsible for trapping the player character in this world, we can also assume that this person is trapping the player character here to experience the pain of death 
an interpretation gathered from, this is how it feels. The person has trapped their murderer in a perpetual state of life and death, a never-ending nightmare of pain. But this vengeful spirit doesn't appear to be the only victim of this murderer, as when the inner trunks speak about their spirit puppeteering the stream of death, they speak as if it was a grievous error. I am remade, but not by you. By the one you should not have killed. Greetings from the fire, and from the one you should not have killed. The player character is a person with much blood on their hands, almost as if burning in a pit of hell is more than adequate to be their life after death. And this person, this one you should not have killed, seems to be in charge of this never-ending nightmare. Even the gameplay of UCN, you can spot what looks to be a child's face peeking behind corners and peering through darkness with a sadistic smile on their face. But one more line from Orville Elephant, with the one you shouldn't have killed behind their breath, gives us the last bit of context we need. He tried to release you. He tried to release us. But I'm not going to let that happen. I will hold you here. I will keep you here, no matter how many times they burn us. Now, I gave you a lot of information at one time, but with this last line by Orville Elephant, and the Mitchell Spirit controlling it, let me break down what is in fact going on. Michael attempted to release all the souls in FMPs, trying to release everyone whose souls lingered far too long in the world of the living. It was unfair that their life had to be taken away from them, and was cut short for the pleasure of the sadistic serial killer. But they would never find peace or revenge. They needed to be released by a third party. Same with the man who killed them. William Afton. Michael trapped his father in the labyrinth below his pizzeria. Created by William's old friend and business partner, Henry Emily, and believed that finally all the ghosts of Fazbear's past could find some semblance of peace. But one spirit's hunger for revenge wasn't satisfied. One of William's victims, whose anger couldn't be quenched, with William feeling the pain he has inflicted just once. Had to know he needed to experience death over and over and over again, no matter how many times people tell him to stop. This certain spirit has trapped William Afton in eternal hell. How ironic for the man who claims he always comes back, that his self-claimed gift of resilience to death will be used against him. Pain to the body is one thing, but pain towards a psychopathic narcissist ego, that is a dagger to the soul. But who could possibly have the power to allow all this to happen? As we explained in our previous episode, episode 11, remnant and agony are the specific elements in the Nazi universe that determine the supernatural powers of the spirit, and we do know certain characters have claims powerful, unnatural abilities. Characters like William and Michael have unparalleled resilience, capable of reanimating and coming back to life despite the most fatal and mortal injuries they have both gone through. It could even be argued that Michael's soul is even stronger than his father, as he was capable of possessing his own corpse, rather than a metallic vessel like most, if not every other spirit had to do. But while possession and durability may be one of their strengths, what is happening in Ultimate Custom might seem to be something neither man has ever shown the capability of. The puppet is also quite powerful lore-wise, as Charlie is capable of allowing other spirits less powerful than hers to be carried into her arms, finding a new vessel to reanimate in between the animatronic characters they once loved. But the puppet seems to have taken both Michael's actions and her 
father's words and FFPS into account. As in UCN, she seems to have lost some drive in her motivation to keep hunting I recognize you, but I'm not afraid of you. Not anymore. I don't hate you, but you need to stay out of my way. That said, it would be lying if she was to say she didn't find some delight in seeing William in his current predicament. Seeing you powerless is like music to me. But she seems to be here on account of another. Someone else who has the power to keep William locked away. More importantly, the tenacity to keep it up. An important distinction that some misinterpret in the label of the one you should not have killed was because this character just happened to be powerful, but happened to be angry and vengeful. I mean, William has killed dozens of people, destroyed the lives of hundreds, if not possibly thousands of people ruined one's happy families in his lust for blood and death. But the one you should not have killed isn't a label of morality, but danger. Someone who will refuse to find peace will be consumed by anger no matter what, and has the drive and motivation to never let the story end. But who is it? Well, the answer lies in completing the game on the highest difficulty. If you set all the robots to their highest difficulty of 20 and attempt to get over 10,000 points, you are given a cutscene of a black robot. After a few moments, a figure appears. A yellow figure with a black top hat and bow tie, sitting in a slouched position with his jaw hanging agape. It's none other than Golden Freddy in his original FNAF 1 appearance, twitching violently as he fades back to the darkness. Suggesting that he refuses to pass on, he will continue tormenting William for all eternity. You may recall that Golden Freddy's identity has been one of the franchise's greatest mysteries. Even in FFPS, where in the game's true ending we see the gravestones of five MCI victims, with each of their names etched onto the front in perfect order to how the mascot heads were originally placed in FNAF 3's ending. Golden Freddy's tombstone is the only one obscured. There are definitely theories of what his or her identity could be, but at the end of the day that's all they are, theories. Some speculate that he could have been possessed by multiple characters, a collection of spirits of William Atkins' victims, per se. The most popular theory is that a young girl named Cassidy originally possessed the animatronic, but after the bite victim died in 1983, they both took possession of it, allowing it to obtain its ghostly state, you know, teleportation, fading through walls, that sort of thing. Now, this theory has problems in and of itself. For start, bite victim died in a hospital in 1983, two years before Cassidy could have taken possession of the Fredbear animatronic. In addition, Characters always refer to Golden Freddy as a singular spirit, not multiple, and also refer to that singular spirit with male pronouns, signifying that this child is in fact a boy, which does poke more holes into this theory. Regardless of his identity, we do know that Golden Freddy is a powerful spirit. After all, even in the first game of the series, he had hallucinatory and reality warping powers capable of shifting in and out of existence of Michael's perception. But how is he able to trap William in a personal nightmare? Well, no answer can be directly found. But more information in this torment could be found. In the novels. There exists a man in Heracles Hospital. A man in room 1280. The man is gruesomely damaged with 
burn translucent skin, a charred skeleton exposed beneath it. The man has some functional organs as his shriveled blackened heart pumps and his withered lungs move slightly up and down. His face is completely destroyed with empty eye sockets, but blood still flows through his veins and he has signs of brain function. Lots of brain function. The hospital has no idea what is going on with him. He shows signs of life, but his existence has to be one of misery. He had lived for so long that local government once ordered he be taken off life support, as the man had no identification or any sense of identity. And even if he did, his life had to be absolute misery. Regardless of saving money and hospital time, one could argue it was morally right to put this man out of his misery. Despite this, even after taking him off life support, the man still continued to live years after. A local priest in the area named Arthur Blythe came to the hospital to give him his last rites. To his and every faculty member of the hospital's surprise, Arthur was able to communicate with the man in room 1280. The man was able to write a series of letters on a piece of paper with his decaying finger dipped in ink. After a few minutes of deductive thinking, Arthur was able to understand that the man wanted to go to a specific place before dying. Perhaps a place of work, or just a place that he has fond memories of. The man had written poorly and shorthandedly the words, Fazbear Entertainment Distribution Center. The hospital wouldn't have it, though, and soon several nurses attempt to do the morally correct action of simply killing. First, Nurse Ackerman attempts to kill the man with an overdose of morphine, but the man in room 1280 seems to be a durable one, so she sets up several vials in preparation for a massive injection. As her hand trembles in preparation for the first injection, the first life she has ever directly taken, she tries her best to rationalize that she is doing the right thing. She holds the charred man's fragile hand down as she prepares her first injection, only to feel the presence of someone watching her. At first, she thought it was security. Perhaps one of the other nurses told the director of the hospital what she was planning to do. Or maybe it was security. But she was utterly surprised to see a small boy stalking behind her. And she thought she made direct eye contact with the boy. He quickly ducked his head down and ran out of the room, giggling to himself. <laughs> she didn't quite understand how the boy got in there or why he was in there in the first place to begin with. But she had to act quickly. Who knows who that boy ran off to, who he was going to tell where he was. That he saw a nurse injecting something to a corpse, perhaps? She had to inject this man now. As she's about to inject her first syringe, she felt a rush of wind as a black shadow of that same small boy flashed before her eyes. The man's heartbeat monitor began to beat rapidly as Nurse Ackerman's chest felt cold. The vials she had set up beforehand had all begun to tumble to the ground, the glass vials shattering as they hit the floor. Nurse Ackerman quickly rushed into the room, quickly finding her other nurse cohorts about what had happened. Apparently... There have been rumors of a young boy always hanging around the man in room 1280. But no nurse or doctor can ever fully get a glimpse of him. The security never sees any children around the room with security cameras. But various hospital faculty claim they could see an image of a smiling boy in a crocodile mask faintly on the various monitors that surround the withering man. Nurse Ackerman refused to go back into the room after so her cohorts try their own methods of killing the man in room 1280. The other nurses, however, aren't able to get any better results. One attempts to smother him to death and momentarily succeeds as she hears his heart flatline. But his heart picks right back up as the shadow of the same small boy plunges out of the man's chest and rips and shreds the pillow with its tattoos. Blood and mucus splatter across the room on the nurse, causing her to faint. 
final nurse attempts to inject the man with hot air in his neck. But unlike the other nurses, she has always had a slight belief in the supernatural. Hearing the other nurses talk about the shadow boy, she decides to surround herself with candles as if it was some form of exorcist in killing the man. But the boy emerges all the same and takes the syringe from her hand and plunges it into her neck. She thankfully survives, but it becomes clear that whatever is going on, that boy is refusing to let that man die. The man in question is, unsurprisingly, William Afton. But in this timeline, things are very different. His little son Michael was successful in burying his father down the first time around. But his father didn't have his precious spring bonnie suit. He was meant to die in that However, one of his victims had other intentions. This victim refused to allow his murder to get off so easily, but he had no form to inhabit, so he attached himself to the vessel of his killer, similar to how Michael attached to his own vessel when he died. He refused to let his soul move on, and instead placed the man in a catatonic state as he played horrific nightmares continuously in his head. His death repeated over and over again, but never quite in the same way. Now, this is only theoretical, but this might just be the state of William Afton in UCN. The game that is being played is nothing more than an allegory to what is really going on, a purgatorical nightmare inside of William's mind. William Afton is still alive. Stuck in his mind is Golden Freddy's six visions of his victims and monsters of William's creations. Underneath the rebel and bird remains at Freddy Fazbear's pizza place, William will live on in a world of deep sleep. Not the eternal sleep that the dream demons of Nightmare and Nightmarion are supposed to dispense on to him. They can only take souls from death. They cannot touch those who have the willpower to there is one entity, however, a being of eternal wisdom who could potentially convince Golden Freddy to end their story. In between the state of life and death, the spirit of Golden Freddy is pulled momentarily from William's mind. He feels his soul bounce around in a black void. No sound emanates as he seemingly falls continuously. As he looks up, the spirit of Golden Freddy sees their soul falling above them. As he looks down, he sees his own reflection looking up. When his feet finally touch the ground, he falls on his own two feet, in a world of crimson trees and grass black as coal. He is surrounded by a blood-red glowing forest, without any of the sounds of nature around him. No sound of birds chirping or wind rustling, but the sounds of never-ending screaming. The spirit recognized that screaming. It was the beautiful sound of William screaming in vain as he suffers over and over and over again. As the spirit gathered his surroundings, he noticed a glowing red figure sitting across a lake red as sulfur. As he walks towards the man by the lake, the spirit can't help but notice the smell of hellfire and brimstone emanating from the water. When Goldenberg gets a close look at the figure, he realizes the shape was humanoid, but also reptilian. The figure appeared to have taken the form of a red alligator, adorned with fishing gear across his body. A long fishing pole rested in his hand, cast out into the red lake in front of him. The young spirit couldn't tell and could easily be mistaken, but for a moment it thought it saw what looked like a sickle and replaced the rod's fishing hook. Like Charon of Greek mythology, this riverman sat by his lake with a cold expression mixed with grief and sorrow. Golden Freddy had heard of this creature, but never knew what it truly was, nor did it ever know its name. The only title that anyone ever knew it went by was Old Man Consequences. The wise man began to open his mouth, 
coat. Please come sit with me for a while. Leave the demon to his demons. Rest your own soul. There is nothing left for you. End quote. But the spirit of Golden Freddy refused to listen to him, and its anger had become too emotional to reason. It left the old man behind. Damn whatever consequences he believed would come. But the wise man's warnings would prove to be more correct than anyone could have anticipated. For in the anger of this vengeful spirit for allowing this man to live on in his shell instead of passing on to the devil himself, the spirit had inadvertently left a back door open for him. It would be the reason why Willie Mapton would once again be able to return. I always come back. And with that, I believe today's episode is over. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach, and consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, or supporting us on our Buy Me a Coffee page using the link in the description below. In our next episode, we'll be finishing up UCN by going over some of the various theories left for the game as there does still exist the various cutscenes that need to be dissected and interpreted. There also does exist the identity of our golden friend. Let's hope that conversation into that territory won't end in too much bloodshed. <laughs> no, it's gonna be a good time. Once again though, I've been your host Nick, and thank you for listening. Have a good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.